Hey, hey, before we get going, uh, we've had, I've had several women message me to say how much they are just loving your voice on this recorded radio. But I want to call out, there's a bit of science here, because you know we talk about people seeing different colors and hearing different things, as you are snogging the microphone, which is how you get that Barry Manilow sound. If you don't know what snogging is, just Google it. And as you're doing that, what they are hearing is the most dulcet, deep, soulful tones. Yet what I'm hearing is just complete and utter nonsense. Three. I'm Ace Callwood. And I'm Scott Wayne. And this is Envoy Recorded Radio. All right. We got some guests this week. We do have Are some they guests, guests this week. Really, family. Yeah, They're okay. family. So uh, I thought we'd do it this way. Elizabeth Byland and Alan Dow, um, I'd like you to introduce yourself as if you're speaking to Paul Wayne. Paul Wayne is my dad, retired oil rigger, has spent the last few decades trying to work out what I do for a living, will consistently ask me when I'm going to work after I've finished a full day's work. So if you were talking to Paul Wayne, how would you describe what you do? Don't look at him. <laughs> I have to go first? So, so it's funny because when people ask what I do, I say, well, I'm a doctor. Because that's I say I'm an internal medicine doctor. And, that's, and then I leave it at that. And then if they want to know more... It gets into the other layers of things I do around being a professor and writing and, and sort of doing a lot of mentorship and, and trying to help people sort of figure out what they want to do with their lives that are that are in healthcare. Um, and then, you know, do some teaching around communication and teamwork. Yeah. So he's Elizabeth. He lost my dad there. Yeah. He's like, <laughs> Paul, suddenly, Paul Wayne has no why, idea. What why do I pay my taxes? You failed. didn't capture your dad. I'm definitely right. not going to capture your I dad. I think you can. Okay. Okay. All right. Take okay. a shot. Uh, well, Mr. Wayne, um, I am a teacher of communication and uh, collaborative play. I do all of that through interactive exercises. And then I'm also an actor. I mean, that was Full right. stop. That was okay. Which <sighs> reminds me, we're adding a new segment, which is confirmed non-listeners to recorded radio. So we'll go. start with my dad, which I guarantee is not listening to this. <laughs> so it doesn't really matter. Okay, coming on. So this week's involuntary sponsor, uh, just a reminder, we have a sponsor every week who has not given us permission and has not paid us to sponsor the exercise, is Lauren Andrews. Lauren, you know why you're this week's sponsor. Keep going. You're doing amazing work. And actually, the colleagues of Alan are going to make sure that you come out the other side just killing it. And then we move on to our regular section around etiquette. Ace. Hello, Scott. Talk to us about tipping. Oh, I, I see why you did this. Because the last time we had like a battle royale around tipping, uh, Elizabeth E.B. was <laughs> in the mix. We were sitting in the very posh. Were we at the Greenbrier? Yes. We were. Was it the Greenbrier? It was. Okay. We were at the Greenbrier yeah. talking about tipping. And there were two factions. And somehow you and I were on opposite sides of this issue. Yes. Okay. All right. All right. So tipping. Um, I'm going to sound like a curmudgeon cheapskate on this one. But tipping, my understanding is tipping is a function of the service one receives. One goes to a restaurant, they pay for their meal, the food that they got, and then their service was either stellar or less than optimal, and we tip as a function of that. At least that's what tipping was supposed to be. What I have found is that tipping is now just the default. And to be clear, I tip. I even would say I tip well. But as we are considering why tipping exists, which I would posit is to um, reward good service. And that's it. Just if the service was great, we reward that with a tip on top of the funds that we paid for the meal that we received. Uh, so it has become a default. And my qualm with that is that the default of you have to tip 20% because the people who served us need to make real money and tipping is a function of that. That's great. Except I would say the owner of the restaurant should be on the hook for that additional wage rather than the patron of the venue. Like I just think we're underpaying and we're expecting patrons to cover the difference and we ought to just pay a living wage so we can go back to saying, hey, your service was incredible. It was over the top. I'm going to give you a little extra money because of it. So right now, as women... And men across the world are saying, his voice doesn't sound quite as deep and confident. <laughs> it's that quiver of fear as the, the toughest look is being given by E.B. Yeah. to Ace. No, I'm legitimately scared because this is, 
Look, I this is reputational risk right mm-hmm. here. Talking about that, I sound like an asshole, and I'm just going to own that. Eb, talk to me. Well, I think that m- most people everywhere in the service industry would agree in that the restaurant managers, leaders, founders, all yeah, of course, like. We all want to get paid an additional hourly wage. But that, like, it just, you're talking about, like, completely changing the system, right? And so until that actually happens, what you are going to a restaurant for is for the experience, but you're also going because somebody else is on their feet and they are they're doing a hundred different things to ensure that just your experience for the next 60 minutes, even 30 minutes, depending, is is up to par. What if it's not? Should I still tip? But the reason that it wouldn't be is not always due to a server. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I would even say that it's it's not. It's often not due to a server. It might be because there's a hundred other things that's happening back in the kitchen that you're not actually aware of. So why should that server be, you know, why 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 should that be something that they're held responsible for? Then that brings me to my question, what is a tip for? I'm looking at you. I'm not going at you. Like there are two other people in this podcast right now. Yeah, but and yeah, you neither keep your eyes is way. Right you keep your eyes on me. Then. Oh, yeah. Fine. Oh, okay. What's so the tip when for, you tip, do you, do you tip the like if you're taking your stuff to go to like the dry cleaners? Do you tip them? And do you tip the valet? And do you leave a tip for those that maybe are like I don't know, like a dog groomer or I'm trying to think of all the other. Yeah, sure. I tip my valet. Yeah, okay. They, they take my car. They bring it back in one piece. Well, what if they didn't park your car exactly? And at the exact angle that it should be to allow for enough space for other cars to to because you haven't seen it, right? Yeah, okay. you don't. Know. But okay, so let's let's run with this hypothetical. If <laughs> yeah. if the valet parks my car in a precarious position and somebody dings it because they didn't park it well, am I going to tip them? Probably not. But, but you don't know. That's interesting. The other thing I think is the the role that guilt plays in this in face to face time. Because how many people tip the maid in a hotel room, the cleaning service? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. You, I do, but very rarely do I know of other people who do it. Yet you tip uh, much better paid baristas in a coffee shop who are sort of eyeball to eyeball. And there's a lot of documentation of sort of inflationary pressure through tipping and owners doing it. And it's it's no doubt that the core problem is that the ownership of, of the entities right. around salary. Um, so it sounds like we need to do a full podcast, on <laughs> like an actual podcast. No, but this, is, but this is like, so this is the thing. I would say I'd like to make this about me and my experience being in Florida mm-hmm. because as a British person in America, I had received excellent service anywhere except tourist destinations in the United States where Brits frequently go Mm. because they hear my accent in Orlando or Anaheim, California, and expect the worst tips ever and just won't serve me. (laughs) These tips are very cultural. It's completely cultural. Try to explain that you tip tip for a beer, but you don't tip on a McDonald's. Yeah. Like if you start looking at where you do and you don't tip, it's, Mm -hmm. there's very little rationality. Take out first dine in. We we grappled with that during the pandemic. And so we operate globally. We're like in various cultures often. And the rules vary, not just here regionally, and not just given the context, but as we traverse the globe, the rules are different. And so uh, my my qualm is not with anybody in the service industry. I think, look, there are a lot of factors, to your point, that are hidden, I don't see. And yeah, you might just be having an off day. But the general premise of tipping was to reward good service and encourage good service because I'll give you more money on top of that. Mm-hmm. I think we've lost that. And I would, I, yeah. I, my qualm is with business owners who aren't paying a living wage and expecting mm-hmm. us, the patrons, to pick up the tab. I, I think that's silly. And yeah, we ought to change the whole system, which I don't think is realistic. So I will continue to tip as we all will um, and tip guys. well at that. For what it's worth. <laughs> I've never I'm, seen him that's so my defense. On behalf of all, all those that have, uh, <laughs> that have served in the restaurant industry and beyond and beyond, we thank you for 
for recognizing. It's just our a matter of principle. I love y'all. Elizabeth, <laughs> I'm not sure if you noticed this, but Perry, who I know in his younger days spent a lot of time working in bars, uh, has just thrown you a look of love and a look of disgust towards Lord Colwood, which is not appropriate because it's not the case he's making, but I'm enjoying him being labeled that <laughs> yeah. way anyway. Okay, before we move on to some uh, health subjects, mental health, I think we just start with some laughter. Um, as part of the segment that is is not known as, hey, this is things that are going on in Britain, but I do think we should celebrate this, Banksy on Valentine's Day. Uh. He, she, or they, whoever is Banksy, in the town of Margate, Kent. So there is a, there is a phrase in, in British English that is, it's more than me job's worth, mate, which essentially means I've got to do this or I might lose my job. And it's sort of this very caricature. It tends to be people in lowly civic responsibilities of that manager that insists on the 27 layers of bureaucracy because that's just what the job is. Anyway, Valentine's Day, Banksy um, in Margate, Kent, came across an old freezer uh, against the side of a wall in an alley and did this magnificent Banksy painting of a 1950s woman throwing uh, her abuser, her abusive husband, into a freezer and sort of slamming it closed on him. So you can imagine what this is worth, okay? You can imagine what this is worth in terms of tourist revenue. And we're talking about millions and millions of pounds. And the local refuse department of Margate Council took the freezer away because it's more than me job's worth, mate, and are busy cleaning the, quote, graffiti off the wall. So the Valentine's message from Margate Town Council is don't you dump anything in those alleys, whether it's worth millions of pounds or not. Okay. All right. I want to talk about imposters. So... We are seeing all over the place, um, people speaking at conferences about imposter syndrome and how to overcome imposter syndrome. And I'm a little bit worried that we're misdefining this thing and then we're not celebrating being an imposter. And EB, you and I spoke a little bit about this, didn't we, the last yes, time we were on the road? Yes, yeah. So my understanding, Dr. Professor MD Dow, is that imposter syndrome is a situation in which you are actually out of your depth and you have fear of being caught out that that you are um constantly concerned that people realize you're not qualified to do it so i can think of a certain congressman from <laughs> new york right now <laughs> who is should be feeling imposter syndrome or if you cheated on your medical exams or you but i'm seeing a lot around people who just feel that they're not good enough in those spaces are we seeing this Am I imagining this? No, I, I mean, I, I think you're you're right. And and I like the fact that you're thinking about how do we define this? Because I do think there's different flavors of this. Yeah. So what might be the flavors of imposter syndrome? Well, I, I think we have uncertainty about how a lot of things work in life. Certainly in, in medicine, we do. And so when I was a junior doctor, I had imposter syndrome because I felt like I didn't know enough and wasn't good enough and sort of what you're talking about. But then I think also there are social dynamics that you walk into where you don't feel a part of that and you describe that as imposter syndrome, which I think is separate. And then I think when you actually become sort of expert in something, and, and I would include life in that, and you sort of know how life works, you're still uncertain about things and you still feel like, okay, I don't know all the answers, but I, I sure, you know, as a as a father, I can't tell my kids I don't know all the answers about about everything, but I do, you know, because it's like, okay, this is a way to sort of think about being an imposter in life as you're trying to sort of navigate it. So, so I do think it's interesting that you're, you're saying there's flavors of it. Yeah, it's, and you're saying <laughs> you might have more of it the more expert you are because it's well documented. The deeper you get into a field, the more you realize the less you know. Yeah. 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 And you have to become comfortable with those lots that you don't know. Yeah, yeah. But, but getting there, you have to go through that one part of imposter syndrome and get to the second part of imposter syndrome. But it's where it's a real thing versus just the feeling of it. So, so one of the things I, I worry about is that we're not celebrating just being an imposter. But actually, no, you're a woman in an all-male room. You're a person of color in an all-white room. Mm -hmm. You're from a social class that shouldn't be here. No, you're an imposter. You are not welcome there. And you might be found out because you, quote, don't belong. But that's okay. You're, you're a rogue in that sense. EB, you and I were talking about this because yeah. we, we were having... I'm sure it was a cup of tea and not a heavy <laughs> beverage, alcoholic beverage. No, after, after a project, <laughs> right. you had just dominated a room of very senior government officials for a day. And you referenced, well, you describe what you referenced. Well, yeah, I just, I, I, I fully recognize that the spaces that I'm often in, I, I, fe I feel like it's due to luck. 
I feel like I I'm constantly in this state of where I I am at a point where I have put a lot of years and energy and dedication into my career, but somehow it just still feels like the opportunities that are given to me are not because I have earned them. It's not because I deserve them. It's not because of all of the, you know, the, the previous experience that's led me to the now. It's just by luck. It's by luck and happenstance, which makes me constantly feel like I I don't belong in these places. So when you put me into a room of, of yeah, just real top tier individuals, it always like I have to I have to wake up like three hours early just just to like do some some deep breathing and like hit my power pose and remind myself that it's okay. I'm allowed to be here. I am good enough. I'm okay. This is fine. And then usually what happens is along the way, because I'm I can't just quit. Like I can't ju- I can't just not do it. Mm-hmm. So I I have to figure it out. I have to I have to force myself to get through the next five minutes and the next five minutes. And then at some point, you know, I, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm okay. It's okay for me to be here. It's okay. But I want that feeling before I start. Mm. And I feel like that feeling never happens until I'm halfway in it. I had it in the car ride on the way here. Did I was you? listening to like Did four I... different podcasts just to get myself in the right headspace for this podcast because I thought I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be in this room with very accomplished individuals. Who am I? That's that's the thought. So the way you described your career path. <sighs> wait, wait, wait can, I, can I jump in for a second? I'm so sweaty right <laughs> now. <laughs> no, so what I, what I find really interesting and, and we know that imposter syndrome doesn't uh, that it's not just along gender lines, but I find that for the just incredible women we work with who are arguably better qualified to be in the room. There's no arguably, but it, be, well, are right, better qualified. Right, are better. better qualified yeah. to be in the room. The The term imposter syndrome came from a paper written in the late 70s. Um, and I pulled up the title, The Imposter Phenomenon in High Achieving Women. It was specifically about gender and about despite high level accomplishments, the success of the women that they talked to about this study was attributed to luck um, or over, overestimating their capabilities mm-hmm. was the phraseology from the paper. And so uh, it the, the phenomenon came about, we talk about it because it was along gender lines. Uh, we just find that everybody, a lot of people have some element of imposter syndrome. So it's, it's I just find it interesting that mm-hmm. as women have risen in the ranks, mm-hmm. it, that's where this term came about. That's, yeah. I find that fascinating. So, so I hear three things here, though. There's this sense of imposter syndrome as as an identity issue. Mm-hmm. There's the sense of imposter syndrome as an expertise issue. And then there's the sense of imposter syndrome as a credibility issues. And I, I think all three of those things kind of work together a little yeah. bit, but they're but they're different because maybe you're describing sort of a credibility thing that you were feeling an imposter about. Mm-hmm. And, and Ace, you're sort of talking about identity, and then there's this expertise issue, too. So it's interesting to, to think about the flavors of this. Yeah, yeah. the The expertise piece is interesting because Scott, as you as you said, for the folks who end up in those rooms, they are actually imposters. They're imposters along identity lines, perhaps, but from an expertise standpoint, not necessarily. Now no, that probably no. tracks with the um, the death of expertise in society currently. Right. Mm-hmm. The oh, who's an expert? If you have some recorded radio show, you, you are the expert. Or if you can write on the Internet and tweet in 140 characters, you're an expert. The armchair experts out there have kind of bastardized what expertise and mastery of a field is. And so those of us who may not look like the homogenous group that we've joined, but share in their expertise are seen as imposters. Mm-hmm. Now, like I. I don't know what to do with that, but I find that fascinating. Am I an imposter or do I share the expertise that everybody else in this room has? Are we actually more of a homogenous group than we're giving credit to along identity lines? Because we don't think about expertise or put that on a pedestal in the way we used to. So I do worry. I, I worry that in oftentimes we say if you put a label on something, it helps people talk about things and move through it and all of those. I do worry about this, especially the role that it, it is being played on professional channels like LinkedIn and less professional mm-hmm. like Instagram where the people I see posting about it are mainly women, it is women relating to this thing, is are you almost creating a beast of a thing 
where we're calling it a syndrome rather than saying, congratulations, you are, you are in this room. Mm. You are clearly better than the other people, quantifiably better because you managed to get in this room. Um, the characterization that you describe of your, your career path of luck is 100% my career path and his and his. Yet each of us would probably self-define it as, as, a, as a managed career path to success. <laughs> it, it, is, it is very interesting. I wonder what the role is well, I'll put it to you. What's the role? What is the role of overly confident men in balancing this out? Can we get self-doubt injections? Well, <laughs> not an idea. Yeah, I I don't know. I, I rephrase your question. So, how does one how does one help? So how how it's, I mean, this is a very real question, and, and probably I'm doing that thing. I'm putting you on the spot with a question. Maybe I open it to all of us. But is, is that if you reckon, I, I see this multiple times a week, multiple times a week. It is along gender lines. At least it's expressed along gender lines. There may be men who are experiencing it. But the, where we are labeling a thing as a syndrome, where what I'm observing is a woman who is in the room who is absolutely expert in that field, and she's an imposter, mm-hmm. but there's no syndrome attached to it. She's not going to be caught out as not belong- as not knowing her stuff because she absolutely knows her stuff. It is the reverse scenario of it's the equivalent of scholarship kids at private schools. Mm. You're just better than the average candidate mm-hmm. um, because you've you've had to fight your way there and and over overperform to be in the room. Yet this we're we're labeling make mislabeling this thing. Potentially. Yeah. So the the question then is how do we help those that feel like that? Yeah. I I don't know. I mean, because part of it is I do feel like it's something that also it it's it it is an internal dialogue that one has with themselves. At least it is for me. I also don't think it's just women. I I mean, I think that it, it could it like it could be a musician who walks into a room with a bunch of other musicians and you see that this this person has, you know, 50,000 followers and yet you only have 500 followers. Your music, you know, it could be just as good, if not, quote, better than this person's, but simply just due to like your stupid Instagram following, you immediately start questioning what you're doing it, why you're doing it, because you don't feel like you have enough people that actually like you as much as they like these other people. So I think that like this, it's like this comparison, right? But I think that the comparison often starts internally. But I do know, at least for me personally, oftentimes when I tell someone what I do, or like the moment that I introduce myself to a group and I say, I teach improv, I, I immediately see everyone, whether they're doubting me or they doubt themselves, it's an immediate, like, just, uh, it's like the bass drops in the room where everybody's like, <laughs> and this feeling of like, oh, no. <laughs> and so I'm immediately met with this wall of doubt that I have to work to overcome. And the really hard part is when I know that I'm in a room, say, and you know, in front of physicians, I don't, I, I didn't go to med school. I don't know anything about medicine. And so here I am trying to introduce this other concept that I firmly believe is important but then I start thinking immediately, but it's not nearly as important as saving a life. Of course, we could argue all day that, okay, well, but what if? Maybe maybe what I am doing is, is saving saving lives, right? Just kind of in like a different way. But the thing is, though, is like ultimately, that's that's a thought, though, that's coming from within. No one is saying that to me. No one's saying that out loud. That's some, That's a story that I've created. And I think the first thing that we have to do is we have to start being accountable for the actual dialogue that we're having with ourselves. Because you didn't know that that's what I was thinking. I had thinking no idea. No. Until I shared that with you. And you seemed to be so <laughs> surprised. I was even more surprised by how surprised you were. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. 
So, I don't think I, <laughs> no. I didn't answer your question at all. I'm no, really hoping that he's going to speak. <laughs> almost guaranteed whatever comes out of my lips. I'll no, take I, 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 what, what's interesting is is you you internalize that like you you held that thing and like this is a my fault thing and I would uh, I'll put my DEI hat on for a second and say we socialize everyone to believe the thing that you've internalized. For what, and this is uh, like I'm speaking to you because we're across the table. But to anyone who feels like they have imposter syndrome, I would challenge the social framework or social fabric that we've woven that says along gender, along race, along the in-group and out-groups that Scott and I talk about in our allyship work. We have socialized the outgroups to believe that they are lesser than and that they have to do more work to get into the room to prove that they are. And the, the data bears this out, right? Women will apply to a job it, only if they meet 100% of qualifications, whereas we know men will apply to that same job if they meet only 60% of the qualifications, mm -hmm. right? The socialization would say that, yeah, men, men are like, fuck it, uh, let me shoot at that. I'll probably hit it. And women would say, ooh, uh, I'm not qualified to do that. And so um, I don't think that's an entirely you thing for what it's worth. And yeah. this is me pontificating. Uh, but I think that's what we've built here societally. And so, yeah. we're seeing that. The question maybe is it that uh, along gender lines that women skew towards too much self-doubt or is it that men skew too much towards overconfidence? <laughs> it may well be the latter because that self-reflection, I think, is a really constructive one. Just to be clear, uh, E.B., you had spent the day guiding chiefs of police, generals. <laughs> they were hanging off your every word. You, if, they were, if they were wild stallions, you broke them. Um, and that was the conversation that we we're having after. So the context of this discussion was an experience of complete dominance of the space. And so yeah. Can I can I touch on the saving lives thing? Right. We Scott and I ranted a little bit about uh, an appointment that I had last week. Um, I'm not sure and why I was he was ranting. I was I was <laughs> well because it was just you and I. Okay. Neither here nor there. Right. Um, that medical professional I interacted with a little bit of empathy, a little bit of better interaction. Like, let's play this out. If I weren't me and I were somebody else, I'd been turned off from my sleep study, wouldn't have done the sleep study. Perhaps my sleep health continues to deteriorate. I don't get the help that I need on that front. Uh, my sleep health, therefore, my work health, therefore, my personal and social health continues to deteriorate. And maybe I end up with a really poor outcome purely predicated on how that medical professional interacted with me, mm -hmm. and that's what you do. You give folks the tools to interact with patients better outside of just the pure medical, here's the technical aspect of your life. You give them the personal piece, and that's incredibly important. So is it that short term, if I do this thing, their heart starts beating again? Yeah, maybe not. But if I give them the tools to interact with a patient better, the outcomes are significantly better on the tail end. Um, I would argue that you are saving lives in your own really rich, really beautiful way. Thank so. you, Ace. All right. Okay, all Thank right. Thank you. Let's just stop this. <laughs> all right, let's stay in medicine. Let's stay in healthcare. Um, uh oh. So I want to talk about ChatGPT, GPT, and AI as it relates to medicine. But but my way of introducing this is actually looking at the video feed right now, which has the four of us on video. And you may notice that Ace is perfectly lit, yeah. and I am like this translucent, shiny white ball of magnesium burning. That's normal. And the reason <laughs> I get to think about this is of course Perry, our producer who set the lighting today, is is black and he set the room for a black performer. Yeah. We've he's built this system to do it. Screw you, Perry. <laughs> anyway, aside from that, but it's a reminder to me about this sort of what we're talking about is we've built this infrastructure that's around a predominantly white male world. And now we have artificial intelligence and we have chat GPT. And it was put to me the other day, um, Bye, let me just check. Yeah, it was put, <laughs> I literally just texted her to ask if it was okay to reference a name. So Christina Miller, who is general counsel of a fintech company, she's based out in Seattle. And we were back and forth about ChatGPT. And she, she sent me this message that said, hang on, haven't we just mechanized the white male mindset into AI? Because this was developed by white men. It essentially represents the tech sector. Isn't this what we're doing? And then I was thinking, Alan, about your world, well, both of your worlds in healthcare around well-documented, the treatment, the under-treatment of uh, diseases and symptoms that affect predominantly women and the experience that people of color have in hospitals and healthcare systems across the US. Okay, so my question for you now is, as AI develops and standardizes and we start to trust this thing, 
What are the implications if we start introducing this into, into medicine and social services and those sorts of environments? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I, I don't want to subvert your entire point there, but so I've played with ChatGPT with Have my you? residents, and we looked at some cases and, oh. and said, what, what do you think, ChatGPT? <laughs> and it gave us very confident advice that was about 20 years old. And so it was not, it was wrong. It wasn't, some of the things it said it was wrong, but a Did lot of it just, just was, leeches. Well, it just was stuff that was not, not the most <laughs> current and the most right way really? to think about things. Yeah. So it yeah. was, do you know so, why that was? Is there an explanation for why it was out of date? Um, I think probably it was sourcing all the information over the past 20 years and saying, okay, well, this is what, this is what things This is almost know, averaging it out. Yeah, and, and we know that, that stuff that people think 20 years ago, it takes a while to, to get out of practice and out of the literature. And so it probably was, was sort of pulling some of that, that stuff in. Um, so I, I worry about it because people are always wanting medical advice about things you know, from me. And I'm, I'm often happy to sort of give them a little nudge in the right direction, but I'm not going to you know, be their doctor. Um, if they can go to ChatGPT and ask those questions, which people probably already are, yeah. they're probably getting some not exactly uh, great medical advice already. And so if you're worried about access to care and equity issues and, and things like that that I am, you're, you are going to get some some potentially bad advice. So that's interesting. When I asked you a few years ago who, who I should have as my general practitioner, you, you represented somebody, you recommended somebody that works in a university system because you said, it's Jeff Kashinka. You go to the same uh, medicine, same, right? Same, hey, Jeff. Same hey, Jeff. Um, <laughs> so because he'll be up to date with the literature, the latest, because he's in a mm-hmm. research university. You're essentially saying the same thing, that AI is potentially out of date. So instead of going to see your physician who should be up to date with the latest uh, research, isn't. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. And and I think it in some ways gets back to the imposter syndrome question a, a little bit. Because when I... So when you look at ChatGPT, what voice do you hear in your head? Oh. So I hear a male voice. And maybe that's because... A male, but yeah. EBM I'm curious. Do you hear a male voice or do you hear a female voice? Oh, I kind of hate to answer this question, but I think I hear a male voice. Yeah, I hear Scott's voice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I that think you do, but I... probably does have a transatlanticized British accent. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I haven't, like, I don't know. I haven't, I, my, here's my most recent experience with this, but I haven't done a whole lot with this yet. But just yesterday, my mm-hmm. husband, a musician, he, he did it. He was like, I, I, you, Let's just See, have old chat, chat GBT. GBT. Let's make it write a bio for me and mm. my music. Mm-hmm. And so, like, and it was perfect. Mm, it really? described Todd's. Oh, about Todd's. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. like descri- like all of it. It was amazing. And it's, but to me, it sounded like it said. It sounded like Todd talking to somebody about his own music. <laughs> so mm. that totally fits. So, Christina, I dug out the message. She said, uh, "So if this was created by men, it may have the it may suffer from quote male answer syndrome, where men respond to a question confidently with a plausible answer, but have no idea whether it's actually true or not." <laughs> and I mean, it fits. Yeah. yeah, I'd like to ask ChatGPT how to describe what I do in my career. To Paul Wayne, so that we can get Scott's dad a better <laughs> answer. That's immediately where my head went. <laughs> so I'm not going to cover this sort of. The, it's it's been covered to death. The New York Times reported that it was interacting with uh, ChatGPT yeah. embedded in Bing, where they self-revealed they weren't they weren't Bing, they were the ChatGPT, and how it was sort of modeling. Um, so I'm I'm less into less interested in debate about AI and its future and whether it's sentient or not. It's more about if this becomes even embedded as our default search engine, which I suspect what Microsoft is going to do, it's going to dial this thing back. So it's really just helping you with search queries, but potentially we are scaling that. Uh, yeah, male male answer syndrome. Mm. Yeah. Well, and I I think I mean this whole chat GPT moment has been a step forward. But you're right. In, in what direction is it going to be? And so how do we sort of do that? And, and maybe there will be the capability to sort of tune chat GPT to the level of uncertainty that you want to have around something. I think that would be interesting for me as a, as a physician to sort of say, you know, how would you think about this case and, and where are you uncertain? Because I know where I'm uncertain when I'm taking care of a patient. And it'd be nice to know that the the medical literature as a whole was also uncertain in this same kind of, of situation that that I feel like an imposter in this situation because I should be feeling like an imposter because we really don't know what the best medical thing to do is in this situation. Mm. Mm. <laughs> when you combine 
uh, what's going on in robotics. Maybe we'll post a, a link to the video, some of the just amazing work in robotics that's happening up in Massachusetts with what the Ukrainians are doing with drones and AI. I'm just going to say Battlestar Galactica, everybody. <laughs> Go watch it. <laughs> Start running. Or Black Mirror, one wow. of the two. No, I mean, and I think, look, I was talking to my kids. Vera yesterday dropped, uh, yesterday on Friday, dropped a, an Olympus um, digital camera on my desk yeah. for, for my girls because we talked about this last week, is, is uh, Gen Z looking for um, de-linked technology, things that are, mm. aren't connected to the web. Uh, yeah. I, once again, Battlestar Galactica, everybody. Just the answers are there. Yeah. Okay. I think we probably need just another, another episode on uh, technology exacerbating bias of its creators because mm. we could go the direction of um, – camera tracking and what demographics cameras track can track versus others based on complexion. We could go to um, eye recognition technology in cameras as well um, and folks with Asian features uh, being perceived as blinking mm. versus having a bias toward Caucasian features and we're seeing chat GPT perhaps exacerbating some of the bias of a technology sector that is very much skewed towards one demographic. Then mm -hmm. um, I'll kind of park that there. That yeah, I'm not surprised that we see some of these outputs and outcomes garbage in, garbage out as far as computers work. So, well, I think it's time for us all to take a big breath, which is a terrible segue over to a note that you had about James Nestor writing about that we're terrible at breathing. And this is where he has this look. He adds things to this list and then says that I added it. <laughs> <laughs> I did not add this. Did I put my name but we, after but this? We but we have a doctor in the building who has, who has written a great book with a magnificent co-author around types of fatigue and exhaustion and what we do about it. Uh, the co-author may look a lot like me. Um, but talk to this. So we're, we're rubbish at breathing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, um, I tuned in. Uh, I was listening to Dan Harris. He had James Nestor on um, and uh, the 10% Happier podcast, which I thought it was a good episode, uh, really good buddy of mine. In case you're interested, a podcast is like radio, but it's recorded and you can listen to it. Anytime. Yeah, it's yeah. on-demand radio, basically, yeah, is what a podcast is. Yeah, um, I don't know why we came up with a new name for it. Um, yeah, but the, the title was You're Breathing Wrong. And uh, what he went into is, hey, we, we were meant to... Uh, we were meant to breathe differently and more deeply and that our diaphragm pushes down on organs and just kind of like gives them a little jolt and keeps them awake. I'm looking at the doctor as I'm saying <laughs> all of this, to be clear. Um, he has a poker face right now. He does. I'm very sure where this is going. I, I, have, I have a thought, but keep going. I'm so what he was saying is uh, I, I think his recommendation was uh, uh, a six-count inhale, six count, exhale, mm. because we breathe very shallowly, if that's a word, and that we could be more intentional about our breathing and similar with the foods that we eat and why our, why we have messed up teeth. It's not because our teeth are bad. It's because our jaws have gotten smaller because of the food we eat. He was just talking about kind of the physiolo physiology and evolution of humans. And so the breathing piece, we just don't breathe as deeply as we once used to. And perhaps that's good for us. It would improve health outcomes, sleep apnea, et cetera, if we were just breathing more intentionally and differently. And so I, I was thinking about it given my sleep problems and felt with a professor, doctor, MD. Are you just trying to get free medical advice? Is this whole thing just so you can get a doctor's appointment? I didn't know we were going to be joined by the prestigious Alan Dow. You, you could have asked ChatGPT. <laughs> so so I, let me just say, so we, we know breathing is this you know, beautiful, wonderful thing that you can do these practices with yoga and whatnot. And, and I think everyone sort of has felt that sense of relaxation you get with, with yoga. Mm -hmm. So th there's probably something there, and I, I don't know the evidence about that. Yeah. Um, I will say one of the amazing medical facts that I once learned that I, I still marvel over is that when you have someone on a, on a ventilator who's, you know, very, very sick and needs to assist with breathing and, you know, they're paralyzed and whatnot, one of the things that the body needs to do and that we struggle with with ventilators sometimes is to sigh mm. is to take these deeper breaths and exhale every once in a while and mm. we haven't really figured out how to do that so great with ventilator technology we do certain settings to try to help with that but just the idea that 
that we need to sigh every few minutes oh. to have this sort of deeper kind of breath. I think there's something deep in the brain about why that's important. And, and I have never understood why, but I think it's one of those marvels to sort of ponder. Oh, that's cool. Elizabeth, how does this translate to acting? Oh, yeah. I was about to ask that. Yeah, we have in acting, I mean, I almost every you know, excellent university or acting program, conservatory, you name it, you spend several, several weeks, years training the the actors to connect with their breath. I mean, even just like very simply put, uh, you you control an entire theater through breath. Like if I walk out on stage and if I immediately <gasps> do that, it it causes everyone mm -hmm. to sort of do the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. we, we tend to mirror other people. And so there's that, I mean, A, that can be used to your advantage as an actor through, you know, communicating any various moment, right? Um, but I think also for actors to also feel grounded and to feel present with others and to connect with others and sort of be in the moment, you also have to keep breathing. You have to allow yourself to connect to your diaphragm and speak from your diaphragm, which means you're speaking with your full breath support. Um, I, especially like in, in my like on camera yeah. classes, you can see it on camera when someone sits down and, and they're nervous because they've completely stopped breathing. And because they've stopped breathing, the person that's watching them through the camera begins to breathe, you know, with, with shallow breath. And then that starts making them feel a particular way because the actor is feeling a particular way. I mean, it's, it's incredibly important for actors to learn how to just breathe and stay in control of their breath. Um, and I think that also is, you know, it's also through breath that is providing your sort of vocal support so we can hear if someone is like vocally strained if they're speaking at you know with their mm. like really top of their head voice yeah. all of that so yeah your breath is it's everything for mm -hmm. for actors so do you do you literally say take a deep breath to people I mean, is that, is oh that, yeah i mean yeah. uh part of our part of our warm-up is you just stand and you just breathe for 60 seconds, two minutes, sometimes five minutes. Uh, the one thing that we also do a lot of is we call vocal vibrations, which is a big exhale. It's a big sigh, but instead of doing that and letting it just kind of be like this breathy sound, you actually let it out with a ha, because that's that vibration is sent through your whole body, which can be quite healing. Yeah, let's start doing that on rounds. You should, yeah. you should. Con context I, is probably important. I would not recommend either of yeah, the three of you, any of the three <laughs> of you, go home and tell your significant other to take a deep breath. <laughs> See how that so plays So it's out. interesting. That's become loaded, hasn't it? EB once threw me out of a studio with her eyes mm -hmm. when you were media coaching uh, an executive client of ours. Uh -huh. And they, they were doing a lot of TV presentations, a lot of uh, market-sensitive presentations. And I sort of stepped into this session and you're talking about breathing. Mm -hmm. And I had that look on my eye. I was like, yeah, this is great warm up. When are we going to do the media training? And you sort of, <laughs> you hurled me out of the studio <laughs> with a look, which was all of this. You were just working on that breathing yeah. before you got came close mm -hmm. to a yeah. camera. And that, that idea of take a breath, which is code for just calm back. down. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But what you're really trying to do is to get, to get people to truly calm down mm -hmm. and ground. Yeah. You know, I once <clears throat> heard, and I don't know if it's true, maybe this would be a great question for Chat Dr. GPT. Dow. Yeah, yeah, and oh, yeah. Dr. Dow. I, but, hate, yeah. I hate this thing already. Either. I but just hate it. I, have you all ever heard that the the reason why so many people, I don't, I think that smoking is, it's, it's different today than what it was even when I was younger, but I grew up in a household of smokers. And <clears throat> one of the reasons why smoking mm. is such an addiction, of course, nicotine, yeah. Yep. But also, in addition to, it's you're constantly taking a breath. Oh, I can, and, as a former smoker, I can attest to that. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, as I talked with my therapist about smoking and smoking cessation, it was, uh, we were working through what it is. And it was like, 
I started smoking when I lived in New York City, the only time I left the building in a 16-hour day. And the irony of polluting my lungs while I was out getting fresh air <laughs> is not lost on me. Mm -hmm. But it was getting out of the building. And so as that continued and progressed, it was a uh, it's the only time I take a deep breath. Yeah. Like you inhale and then you exhale. And yeah, so that clearly not great for a person, but I understood what that was. It was mm -hmm. my break. And it was when I breathed deeply um, with carcinogens heading into my lungs at the same time. <laughs> I mean, I think this, uh, this, this world might explain maybe the enormous popularity of yoga and meditation might just be us getting back to breathing Breath properly. Yeah. yeah. Just mm -hmm. maybe it's not. And it might make it more accessible if it, it wasn't a large event known as meditation. It was it was just slowly breathing. But even small things, and I'll, I'll kind of maybe land, well, we'll decide where we land on this one. But um, I was reading some work from Dan Lieberman at Harvard, and, and he suggests just getting up and changing position every hour. Mm -hmm. um, and in the same way, it kind of forces us to breathe differently, focus on posture, mm -hmm. shift our body a little. All the things that yoga does, both on mm -hmm. breath and on body work, it's a... Uh, can we force that because we weren't meant to be sitting in the way that we do for hours on end in front of computers or like my neck right now because I look down at my phone or even when I'm reading like the way that we position our body is not how it was designed and if we're not intentional about shifting that and maneuvering it every now and then it's kind of Pomodoro timer for your body movement would probably be appropriate and I should probably be better at that. All right. Person. So Perry's starting to look bored, which is our signal that we need to wrap up. <laughs> so let's drive through some uh, pointless plug of the week. Can oh, you yeah, find a product that we want to promote that is tied to uh, the value of breathing? Ooh. Um, is this multiple choice for I, me? Just I, choose one. Uh, let's go with Xterra paddle boards. All right. Yeah. Yeah. And this is with two people here who have been out on set Xterra paddleboards. Um, so we, we paddleboard often. Xterra is one of the premier brands for uh, triathletes, is my understanding. Um, they're wetsuits. Xterra makes triathlon wetsuits. Uh, but they also make paddleboards. And the founder, Keith, is from Richmond. So we bought a fleet of paddleboards in the pandemic. Scott and I used that for our mental health and fitness and wellness. And we got out and posted a picture to LinkedIn. And we got a note from the founder of Xterra that said, it's really cool to see my paddleboards on the backdrop of my hometown. And so we connected the dots there. It was, it was just really yes. magical. So thing. buy a paddleboard. Season's coming up. Um, I'm not sure his note said that. I think his note said, you're really taking those out on the James River? I think was what he said. Um, and then on to Envoy Tank Radio, which is our ongoing segment by accident that started talking about tanks, which is talking about military stuff in a civilian world because we think there it's uh, civilians don't really get much access to those who are serving. Uh, so I, I want to talk about deconfliction. So President Biden yesterday visited Kiev, which was just the most remarkable journey. Uh, and uh, if you look at the sidelines of the photographs, you will see Ukrainian soldiers walking net side by side with Secret Service agents, with Secret Service agents looking more nervous than you can imagine, which is probably the highest risk environment that a president has been to, where the United States does not control the airspace and certainly not the ground space that was going on. But there was something in there. So there's lots been written on this. You can look at it. But the phrase deconfliction came up which was um, the national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, actually messaged. So everything was under wraps. The US media was misguided as to where the president was. But actually, the Russians knew where the president was because they went through this process of deconfliction, which was as they were on the train heading to Kiev, a message was sent to the high ranks of the, of the Russian uh, foreign policy and military establishment to say, the president is here. There will be no mistakes if there. So what deconfliction is, is to make clear to the other side that there is no scope for accidents to happen. So if it was reported by a local or by intelligence that the president was there and there was accidentally a missile attack, um, then the Russians could have claimed to inadvertently killed the president because they didn't know. Deconfliction is to public is to privately communicate that this is happening, so that if something happens, we know you did it consciously. And I wonder if we don't in, incorporate that into corporate politics. I'm going to deconflict this. I'm about to deploy this move. If you counter <laughs> with this promotion or budget cut or you know promotion within within the hospital, I'll we're deconflicting this. Yeah. yeah, yeah, deconflicting yeah, yeah. to avoid. Uh, mistakes in an arena of conflict. Alan's nodding his head now, thinking about. Well, I, I mean, I, I don't work in a, an arena of conflict. Tenure, but but I, no, but I do think that that there are are things you tell people who you know can't keep secrets because ah. you want people to 
to spread that. And I, I this is sort of that kind of thing is that it was it was funny how this news trickled out because I, I was having trouble following. How do the Russians know? But the U.S. press doesn't. And the U.S. press, you could tell, was a little mad by it mm-hmm. that they didn't know. Um, yes. And and so I, it, it's interesting how you create a, a narrative around this. Mm. EB's just shaking her head. <laughs> I yeah I I'm I'm trying to think of all of the times where I've done that. Like I I think I've done that, and I but I don't know when or where. I think I've I've I think I've done it at home, even like uh, with my spouse to mm. protect myself later in a potential dispute, <laughs> even at home. Maybe's out here playing Wait, chess. I, there, are, I, there are civilian yeah. applications for this. I'm realizing it. <laughs> Vera, our chief of staff, does this a lot with he and I. So mm-hmm. she will say to me, he is in a bad mood. Like he's inbound, he is inbound to canvas. Mm-hmm. He is in a bad mood, which is her way of saying, if you rile him up, you know he's in a bad, you have chosen this you escalation. Did this. You did this. This is on you. Yeah, I'm deconflicting this, and I'm sure the same happens to him all the yeah, time. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. There's, right. there's another element of just street justice of, I wish you would. I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to give you this information. Do something about it. What's yeah. up? And and like I, I think in in the geopolitical realm, like yeah. we were we saw that, right? It's uh, yeah. But do you think like, it happened so fast that they, they the Russians didn't know what to do, so they did nothing? Yeah, which was of course the result. That but it's the US uh, yeah, do something silly and you'll catch these hands. Is uh, that's the huh. paraphrase version? As Perry's just chuckling at me. Uh, yeah, no, that's that's what was said. It's uh, this is very real. I'm giving you this information, and you won't. Mm-hmm. And we found that they didn't. And and all of the press this morning is about how the Russians didn't do anything, and that says something very, very real about where. Well, the... they didn't not do something. Sure. They they uh, now whether this was by design or not, there were sirens going off, air raid sirens, as President Biden arrived, which mm-hmm. was triggered by a, a, a jet a jet taking, taking off. off. Yeah. Um, so who who knows with the command and control? I'm I'm at risk of being a Twitter expert on this, so I'm going to back <laughs> off on this one. Deconfliction. That's our concept from the military that. world to the civilian this week, um, and then maybe we close with gift of the week. So oh, gift gift of the week this week. So what we do, Eb, is we put a, what do you call it? An Easter egg? What do you what do people call these things? Well, we, let's find out what it is before right. we decide so, to name it. So we plant at the end at the end of recorded radio or somewhere in it a free gift if you've listened to this point. You get it. You've got to message us with it. And it's, yeah. Great. So, so this gift of the week is inspired by my Friday that I spent at Great Wolf Lodge with my nine-year-old and a friend and, and his kids, which if you haven't been to Great Wolf Lodge... Um, I'd imagine you're a delicacy there. It is, it, is the, it is the only place I'm an 11. Let's just say that. <laughs> it, is, um, it is probably the source of both the COVID virus itself and the cure. Um, the amount of toxic chemicals in those swim- it's an indoor swimming pool with a hotel where you- it's wolves and bears and stuff. Anyway, it, it is a fine collection of, of um, I was going to say participants. It's not a show. It's actually a vacation uh, of guests. Um, well, you're part but, of the show. But in the parking lot, Sounds in the parking lot was a, was a Jeep, a highly, for one of better description, a highly mechanized Jeep. It had lots of things added to it and bolted onto it. But across the front, it had this banner that said, take America back. So take America back. Well, Great Wolf Lodge is in Williamsburg, you know, colonial <laughs> Williamsburg. And I was like, is that a code to British people? Is that what we need to do? So anyway, for those of who've listened this far, Ashley, Ashley of Haymaker Goods, I'm going to ask you to make a mug that says, take America back in the font that we know is that angry font, but just put a little Union Jack at the bottom. So anybody who wants to take America back mug with a Union Jack at the bottom, <laughs> Just drop me a note you saying, can't have it. saying mug, and we will ship one to you anywhere around the world. There we go. You heard it first. Write mug to Envoy Recorded Radio, and you will get a mug sent to you courtesy of Ashley at Haymaker Goods. <laughs> and that wraps us up for the week. This has been fun. Hey, thanks for joining, y'all. Thanks for having yeah, us. Yeah, it's good to be here. Yeah. This has been Envoy Recorded Radio. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>